Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Hi, my name is Mukotewa. I'm doing a BSc in Mathematics and Physics. I, I know that Prof. Abebe is our Vice-Chancellor, but the other people, I've seen them, but I don't know their names or what they really do. What I do know is that the FRC is the one that represents us to management and so far I believe that they do represent the students well because we've seen them work through the fees must fall campaign and yeah, that happened to be something that was successful and it helped a lot of students come back to VETS and we've also seen them have one million donated just for students to come back to school so I believe that the SRC has been representing us well so far. In this week's episode, we explore questions of university governance. Many listeners might not know, or perhaps even care about, the difference between council, senate, university management, senior executive teams, etc. But the past 18 months have shown that academic staff and students need to know more about how their institutions are structured and governed. Our guest today is Shireen Hasim, a professor of politics at Fitz University, and a long-standing member of the university's Senate. As well as this, she is a Senate representative to council, so she sits on both Senate and council at Fitz University. She's also a widely published researcher and someone with a long career of teaching. As such, she's really well positioned to provide insight into questions of university governance and to help us think through and understand how the institutions are organized and function. A very warm welcome to Shireen. This might be an overly simple way to start, but I know that when I started my academic career, I didn't necessarily know the answer to this question. What is a university council and how does it work? about council. You ask me what is the role of council and council is a structure that's written into the Higher Education Act and its composition is largely governed by the Act but I should say that that is being looked at again by government and and, and what the council is made up of are student representatives, staff representatives, academic staff representatives who are not on Senate and they are usually very much in the minority four academic representatives from Senate, and then a variety of other people, some appointed by the minister, some appointed by the city, and some appointed sort of jointly to represent things like professional bodies who have an overall interest in the training that we do in the university. So it's quite a diverse group of people, and it's chaired by somebody who's not a member of the staff of the university. And at this, nobody gets paid to sit on council. Some universities do pay council members, but this doesn't. So it's kind of a voluntary 
body. I think there's been a perception that council is this white structure that's actually not true. I can't immediately recall the composition, but it's at least 50%, if not more, black members. So, and its overall role is a governance one. It oversees management. It's responsible for the big policies. So things like fees, of course, because the council is responsible for the financial well-being of the institution. In fact, it has a fiduciary responsibility to keep the university afloat. So things like fees and salary increases and so on always have to go to Senate uh, and then to council. So it is a powerful body. It's an ultimate governance structure. And it is made up, I would say, of these different interests. There's some, some people who, who are very concerned about the financial uh, management of the university and others who are in, much more interested in the ways in which the institution is meeting other kinds of goals of inclusivity and, you know, is the university, the quality of the education that's being provided and so on. So all of those come together. Mm -hmm. So that's council. Um, the management are part of, sit on council. So Adam Habib is not the chair of council, but he's a very significant figure, obviously has a big, loud voice in council. But there are some issues on which management have to leave the room, for example, and council can deliberate. When the issue of the fee increases came up, uh, the subcommittees of council that did the financial modelling came up with that increase that was high, but not unrealistic, it was felt. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were to look on a purely financial level, purely at the administration of the university. What are the costs of running the university? The financial modeling couldn't be faulted. The university doesn't make a profit, contrary to what people think. Of course, there are priorities that we can debate over spending. But put that aside, the modeling on the fees increase was purely based on what is necessary to maintain the university and grow it a little bit. And the costs have increased enormously around things like library fees, you know, because of the fall in the rand, increase in our electricity bill, increase a whole range of in increases meant that that 10% was a financially sound number, which is not to say it was a morally good number. Mm. So we'll come back to the fees question in a little while, but before we get there, I was hoping that we could just clarify, because I think a lot of listeners who work in academic settings, they're not always clear on exactly how the governance of the institution is structured. Right. So you've explained to us quite clearly, I think, how the role that council plays and, and what council is. Because you're also a member of Senate and you're a Senate representative to council, perhaps you could also just kind of clarify what Senate is, because all universities in South Africa have a Senate and a council, right? So could you kind of just spell out for listeners what the role of Senate is and how that mm -hmm. is composed? So Senate is made up of all the four professors in the university and then a number of other representatives. So uh, every full professor is a member, and then 28%, I think, of our Senate is made up of other members of the academic staff, our students have representation. I think there are eight or ten students on our Senate. 
there are ex-officio members of Senate who are like people at the registrar, the dean of students. And so and that means they don't vote, but they're part of Senate. And then the university management. So Senate tends to be chaired by the vice-chancellor, except when it is a matter involving him, in which case we have another officially chosen by Senate, chair of Senate, mm-hmm. who will take over under those circumstances. The Senate's main responsibility is the academic project. That's its, it is the final arbiter on things like curricula. Even when you have an appeal against exclusion, actually that's an academic matter that comes ultimately before Senate. And Senate uh, has a really important role to play uh, when it thinks that some of the decisions made by management are undermining the academic project, right? So there's often a tension between management's plans and what the Senate thinks is important. One big conflict, for example, in the last 10 years was around the BITS vision to get into the rating systems and so on. There's a lot of debate about whether that was a good thing, whether it was appropriate for a country like South Africa to be going for ratings, or should we have a much more, look much more inwardly at what our academic project needs, rather than be measured by external standards. So it's a space where you have those kinds of large debates about the direction of the university. And it's the one place, I would say, Senate and Council are the two bodies that are hardest for management to control. In my experience, Senate tends to be the the most independent structure. It's the one that can actually stop management in its tracks if it thinks that the project that is being unrolled is one that will undermine the academic project. And what then is the relationship between Senate and Council? All academic decisions have to go to Senate before they go to Council. Mm -hmm. So all matters of policy relating to the academic project go first to Senate. And if Senate doesn't pass it, Council does have the right to overrule, but it very rarely will do that because it tends to treat Senate as a serious body. Uh, Council has two reps, I think, to Senate. Senate has four reps to Council. But it matters if Senate disagrees with something, it really matters in council. And it's not to say that they don't override. The most recent example where council didn't agree with Senate is around the performance management policy, which Senate voted against and council wants to keep on the agenda. So there are moments of conflict. I think for a lot of people listening, you know, trying to kind of understand these complex bureaucracies of the institutions that they work for can be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be to colleagues who who feel perhaps a little alienated or excluded by these structures? They wish they could have some kind of say in how things work, what kinds of matters are debated at Senate, how decisions are taken. What would your advice be for colleagues who want to feel more included in the, the governance of their institutions, but aren't sure about how to do that? Well, the usual way in which you would do it is get involved in the faculty committees and then faculty board. Faculty board is the space where every academic should have a voice. Sadly, most people don't seem to go to faculty board. Don't know why. So can anyone go to faculty board? Yes. Okay. 
This is a, perhaps a little known fact. <laughs> it used to be more exclusive at one point. It used to be all the heads of department, and then, but it's, I, I think under Luciana Osman, it's pretty open. Okay, so that's the Faculty so, of Humanities in particular. Faculty of Humanities Board, right? So, Faculty Board is one place. Mm-hmm. Once you're involved in faculty committees, you will see that there's a kind of a, a line of committees that go from, for example, a graduate studies committee in a faculty will have a rep to the Senate Graduate Studies Committee. And most of the work of Senate, actually the real work takes place in its committee structure. So Senate's Grad Studies, Senate's Academic Planning Committee, there are myriad committees, and that's where really people have voice. Mm. And I think that a lot of things get fought over in those committees before they actually come to Senate. Thank heavens, otherwise Senate would be even longer than it mm. is, which is really ridiculously long as it is. Mm. So colleagues, I think, who want to have a voice should get into the faculty-level committees. And I think different faculties handle that differently. Mm. I, I, I do hear that in some faculties people feel that those committees are all closed and they're not invited. Mm. Uh, in my own experience, it's been it's been different that we, people don't want to get involved in committee work, mm. you know, mm. and it's very hard to get people seriously mm. engaged. But actually, you can have quite a lot of power. It's quite interesting talking about this, especially with a professor of politics, because I think what we we've been discussing up to this point is one particular model of politics, right? An institutional kind of bureaucracy driven committee oriented type of politics, which many people are either discouraged or uninterested in participating in. Yet over the past 12 months or longer, almost 18 months now, we've seen a new kind of politics happening at universities around South Africa. If we think of the Mm. Roads Must Fall movement at UCT, Fees Must Fall movement at WITS, um, and new things that are happening at universities around the country and the world, in fact, all the time is kind of more bottom-up grassroots kind of movements. So how do you think those two kinds of politics are interacting? Because we've seen quite a a strong, I think quite a successful set of actions from the kind of anti-bureaucratic, if I could call it that, group. So, so what do you think about that new model of politics, and I how think do it's you a new think... model of I think politics always is more than the institutions. It's always been more about more than the institutions. I don't think it's that new. I think there are moments when the extra institutional mechanisms or forms of action come up to the fore, right? But in fact, you can't sustain such a complex institution like a university purely in a non-bureaucratic way. It becomes unwieldy. So even though there are moments when you really need the politics to step outside of the conventional forms in order to break deadlocks and to break certain configurations of power, which do need to be challenged because there's something very ossifying about the bureaucratic structures and alienating, mm-hmm. right? They, and they are, and there's, you know, they tend to conservatism. Mm. There's no question, they're sort of, they're conserving in a small way, right? They're focused on institutional rules and procedures and all of those things. And every now and then, when the issues reach that point where the, the many inherent conflicts in an institution come to the fore, mm. 
then you can't, you know, you need that. You need always need both, is my view. You always need both kinds of politics. You know, there's no, I would, I would never want to be living in a society which is governed entirely by existing rules and procedures. Mm -hmm. That would be a very static kind of society. It's autocratic, mm -hmm. right, if you have that kind of system. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the extra institutional kind of politics or the kind of street-level politics has to translate into new principles. How, you can't run an entire university from Senate House Concourse. It's just not feasible. So I'm not sure what the alternative model would be. That's what I struggle with all the time. How do you get that alternative model to be one that works in moments that aren't moments of high conflict? So what do you do? How, how do you decide, for example, what a PhD degree should look like? It, it's around those kinds of questions. What should be the requirements for passing this course or that? You know, what are the minimum core requirements for a degree in engineering? How do we manage the demands of the Health Professions Council with our medical degree? That's the everyday ordinary work. It's, no, somebody's got to do it and it's got to happen. And those things, so, so posing those two types of politics as, as completely separate to me doesn't work. You're always going to need some form of institution. And so in that sense, I guess I'm not, I'm not an anarchist in that I, I can see a space for institutional procedures, but I do think they should be as minimal as they need to be and as inclusive as they can be. And I do think you want, in a university, real participation of academics. Of course you want the real participation of students, but I'm going to say, and I think this may be a bit controversial, but students come and go. Students are generations that come and go. You know, it's the academics who are in the university for the long haul and kind of have... I would say, yeah, management comes and goes. They're on five-year contracts. They come and go, you know. It's all of us who are teaching and writing and all of that who really have the long-term interests of the institution at heart. So a system that doesn't give voice to the academics, for me, is one that's going to fall apart. I think that's really kind of quite a profound way of putting it because I think a lot of times academics feel trapped or caught between the two quite polarizing voices of management and, and students. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time to ask you if you're willing to reflect a little bit on how you felt university management, not specifically, but just in general, because I think we saw a lot of really interesting responses to the kind of bottom-up push from students for different kinds of transformation, all of which are linked in different ways regarding access, regarding mm -hmm affordability, regarding fees, regarding transformation, regarding decoloniality, all of that stuff, um, and, and quite a lot of different responses from management at different universities. And a lot of us academics are felt caught in the middle, you know, in, in the way that you described. What are your reflections on how universities have managed the many challenges that we've seen in the past couple of months, kind of institutionally and managerially. Yeah, you know, I would, I would be reluctant to say some, anything about other universities. I could say about FITS that I think it did reasonably well, but not brilliantly. 
And I say that with a, a little bit of in, insight into how stressful it was for everybody in those moments and how many decisions were made on the hoof, as it were, how it was a moment in which all the representative mechanisms seemed to fall apart. You know, the students didn't want to work through the SRC mode. So everybody was working in a kind of a vacuum of procedures, like epitomized by the Vice-Chancellor having to go and sit on the floor and Senate House in order to have a conversation, which was powerful performatively, but not sustainable in the long term. In the end, you're going to have to have a representative body of students that will speak to students' needs and interests. And if that body is not representative, then somehow it's something the students have to challenge. At the same time, you know, if you have management that's making decisions that are not what academics want to support, then academics have to take that on through the Senate and through um, faculty boards and so on. So I think you need to take it up in some kind of formalized space in order to change things in the long term. So how did the institutions do? I think FITS did fairly well. I think that certain of, for me, some of the tactics that we used by management were tactics that I could not support. I don't like seeing security on campus. I don't think it ever helps to resolve a situation. I think it, uh, it produces fear. I think that they often are, uh, they become a law unto themselves. I think I just think a university should have no should not have any security. That's the reason why I also support the fact that it's is a gun free campus and something I feel proud of about it. So when security on campus it is profoundly disturbing. And for those of my generation who were at universities in the eighties, you know, it also it's it's a visceral reaction because it it reminds you it's a sort of you, it's a somatic response to moments when in the past you were at the receiving end of quite a lot of state violence. So uh, I think it is almost never helpful to bring security on. But the one thing I did learn during the protest from sitting on council actually is that. Management operated with a different set of considerations, right? So management are responsible for the institution as a whole. They are, as much as they are responsible for making sure the protesters are not harassed, they get hundreds of emails and phone calls from other students who are not supporting protest, parents who are worried about the safety, rightly or wrongly. So they sit there and they, they're getting all this other stuff and they are responsible for the university as a whole. They see themselves as having a kind of meta-responsibility, if you like. They also have to think about the consequences of damage to property in a way that I don't have to think about it, right? Because they have to pay it somehow, find the money out of the budgets to pay for it. So I kind of saw how they grappled with that. I don't think they always came down on the right side, but I did 
see quite a lot of grappling, whether it was the right thing to do and when it was the right thing to do. I think that on the whole, they did all right. You know, I think they also learned something in the process. What kind of debates were taking place at the council level when we were in these difficult positions of quite a kind of mass student protest, a kind of movement that was really gaining a lot of public attention, that was gaining quite eventually quite a bit of public sympathy. So what kind of debates were happening at council about those There weren't protests? that many council meetings. You know, a lot of this, as I said, is council doesn't get involved into the day-to-day right. decision-making. Mm-hmm. I think there were maybe two meetings mm-hmm. of the council. One big debate was whether to go ahead with the exams or not, and there was enormous pressure on the senior executive team because many students write exams that have external ramifications, right? They're like board-level exams and so on, and so there was an issue of time. So there, there was one particular meeting where, you know, either the exams were postponed by another two weeks, in which case we might have been in a UCT situation. You know, UCT ended up writing exams in January for, for many students, or, or council was being asked to bite the bullet and say, you take the risk, go back to university, and go back to class. There were lots of emailed interactions, however, about at what point to bring security onto campus. And mostly there was a holding off you know, I would have to go back to looking at all of those, the email thread. Council was caught in the decision to make, to put this fees up by 10%, which was, was the responsible thing to do. Financially, financially speaking. speaking. And it has fiduciary responsibility. If you don't take your council role very seriously and you want to be popular, you can just not increase it by that amount. But all you're doing is leaving a problem that has to be addressed in the years to come. And Vitz in the not-too-distant past, like 10 years ago, was really on the verge of bankruptcy. You know, Vitz has been through some really lean times. The 2000 restructuring came out of a moment in which Bits had no money and had to do something radical. So I think there's a lot of careful trading in council to not get back to that situation where you had to retrench staff. and It just really didn't want to do that. But it had voted for the 10% increase. And now what? what you know? So council had to meet in order to agree to not put the fees up for next year, which in the end it did. But it has left the council with a real problem, the university with a real problem. So I imagine there were and will be many difficult conversations about those issues going forward at that level. On a slightly different note, what do you think, as an analyst of politics, what are your views on how the student movement has kind of evolved and, and changed? And some have said it's kind of splintered and fragmented a bit. Others may have different views. But what are your observations on how the politics of the, the student movement has changed? And do you think that may impact the kind of institutional politics going forward? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about student politics is that it, it's fantastic to see student politics because we went through a big period at bits when it seemed like 
the students were not particularly involved in politics anymore, which was quite hard to understand why that had happened. It seemed to be a period in the early 2000s when, when students didn't really seem to be particularly engaged. The SRC was ritually elected, didn't, you know, seem to feature in terms of taking up big issues of change. So it's fantastic that there's a revitalization. It was a good shock to the system of SRC representation, right, to say, you know, do you, what do you stand for? Who do you represent? But I think ultimately we have to have an SRC. How else are you going to represent students? So my observation about the student movement is that this kind of horizontal type of politics, this unstructured form of politics, has been tried so many times in history, and unless you organize into some kind of structure, it, it withers away, unfortunately. That's my, my sense. I know I have, you know, I have colleagues who are much more romantic about the more anarchist mode of politics, but I don't feel that those are sustainable forms. Uh, in the long term. So many students' movements not and many leftist movements have withered away because they haven't found that way of coalescing into some kind of a structure. But having said that, of course, I think that the student movement did do something that hadn't been done in South African politics for the last 15 years or so, and that was to put on the table the big questions of how public spending um, gets decided, who gets to decide what are the priorities. They put it on the table and, you know, other movements haven't been able to do that. Various movements have tried, the Democratic Left Front, given things like Corruption Watch, civil society organisations have tried to raise those questions and it's never become a big national conversation. And that's what happened in 2015 as it became a national conversation. So I think it was phenomenal for disrupting the pattern. What we do with that is another story. What we do with the openings that were like things that were pushed open by this politics. Do you think there's any possibility, institutionally speaking, for those openings to lead to some kinds of reform in the governance of our universities? What would you want to change? Would you want to change council? How would you want to change council? I don't know. I want to hear what that is because I think we can tinker with this, but the real question is how organized we are. Mm -hmm. If the different sectors on campus are organized, then suddenly Senate becomes a different kind of a place. I think we need to think about that. What would we want to change? You always in my view, you have to curb the power of management. There's no question, right? So how do you do that? You know, if you all get, it's open to a process of persuasion. There's nothing inherently closed about it. I don't think. I've seen Senate being very conservative, but I've also seen Senate being very radical. And it just depends on how organized you are and whether you can make the arguments and convince other Senate members. Quite often we tend to succeed. Mm. So what would we want to change? I would back that question back mm. to say, what do we imagine could be changed by the governance mm. structure? Mm. A topic for a future podcast. It is a topic, mm. but it is a, it's a really important question mm. because I think we imagine 
that more control by some sectors would change things. But you know, you could have you could have you're going to have more ministerial appointments to council, for example, as a result of the new act. There's nothing to stop various constituencies mobilizing to make sure that their voice gets heard at council. Council almost never goes to a vote. It works by consensus and argument. Sometimes progressive voices lose the debate. Sometimes they win. Quite often they win. They may also lose, right? Performance management system is one thing which we lost. Executive bonuses. But you live to fight another day. That's my, I mean, I just think, well, okay, so we lost it. So then we have to mobilize better. We have to have better arguments. We have to push it harder. I just, I would like to see that. I would like that conversation. How do we change the governance structure? So there's talk at the moment about democratizing Senate, for example. Fitz is a university with a very large percentage of representatives not from the full professoriate on Senate. Not all Senates are constituted like that, in fact. Would having more people change it? A larger Senate? What would be the outcome of a larger Senate? I think you would have no quorum. And that's also, I think, maybe the, the kind of sense of exhaustion of someone who's been who's old in the institution, you know? There have, been, there have been periods of time when we couldn't get a quorum of people coming to Senate. Mm. I think attendance is a big issue. Attendance is a big issue. So you make it bigger. How many full professors more, don't you know? turn up at Senate meetings? Yeah. You know, mm, it's a problem. But if you take away the idea of Senate as being the the body of the where the full professors have mm. power, I think you could lose a significant amount of power because full professors are immovable in the institution. They don't rely on anyone from they don't need promotion. They don't need the imprimatur of power in order to do their job. And that means that when necessary they can be mobilized mm. to be quite an interesting power block. Mm. Whereas all other layers are dependent on playing the game to some extent in order to get promoted and, you know, move up the ranks and so on. That's partly the power that Senate has. Of course, many full professors don't care and don't use it. That is true. Maybe we need to just have a whip. (laughs) We need a Senate whip that makes full professors turn up and... uh execute their responsibilities. Yeah, well, that would be interesting. You've got no lever against them. So the good side of it is that nobody can mm. fire a full tenured full professor. Mm. The bad side of it is you can't make them do anything. Mm. You know, they're mm. untouchable. Interesting. I'm sure if there are any students listening, they might find that quite a worrying setup. They might wonder, do these full professors care about us? You know, but again, that's probably a topic for another. No, but going to Senate does mean they don't care about students. Whether they go to Senate or not has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with that. There are a lot of very, very good, caring, full professors Mm -hmm. who put their life and soul into Mm -hmm. their teaching and their students and think Senate is just a boring talk Mm -hmm. shop. Mm So that's why they don't come. It's not that they don't care. I think I think the issue is who has half, who has voice in the university, and where do they have that voice, and is that voice listened to or not? That we have to address. I, I agree, and I think.
think a lot of that is in our hands, that we don't show up often enough to make ourselves known and heard and so on, right? So overall, the progressive colleagues are the only ones who do that kind of work. They're more likely to do that kind of work, actually, It's the progressive colleagues. And then they get unfairly blamed for politicizing issues, you know, but the people who don't show up, you know, often they're just not interested in institutional politics mm. in the same way. So one of the answers that I'm getting from our conversation is that you know, colleagues, if they want to be involved in the governance of their institutions, they need to show up at the committee meetings at various yeah. levels, at Senate and beyond, and to really add their voices to the debates. The problem is most of us hate committee work, and we get very little reward for it. So it's just additional work, but it's the only way in which to have voice. It's, it's a terrible bind. Mm. And our voices it's do really, matter, which... You can shame a faculty. Actually, the faculty can be, there are many places in which people can get involved. And, you know, you, you can take it into Senate committees. Senate committees could be slightly better run, I think. You know, there could be better reporting back from committees and so on. There's not enough of that. I think what happens is that people get so caught up in the actual work of the committee that they forget about communicating what is going on to everybody around them because that's just another burden. You know, who's going to sit down and write a report? You're just so exhausted from yeah. being in the meeting. But I think faculties are where we should be talking about democratization and greater voice and more bottom-up control. And that's where we are, it's in the schools and the faculties. That's where we do the lion's share of our work. Yeah, so. and that's where we develop. You, you, then you can develop much more democratic rules that can then feed into Senate. I, you know, I'm not saying that Senate is this wonderful democratic place. Mm-hmm. It it, it uh, waxes and wanes, mm-hmm. and you have to work very hard. You have to really work hard to speak up mm-hmm. in the Senate and make sure things don't go down the garden path mm-hmm. of endless debate, and nor do you want it to go down the path of just agreeing to everything management wants, mm-hmm. right? That means you really have to be on top of the issues and you have to do your homework and all of those things and you have to know what's coming up and you have to be alert and attuned mm. to the nuances that will come back to bite you in five years' time. It's a huge amount of work on it's top of our research. It's a lot of work. And, and so when we, say, when we say we want to make it democratic and open it up, I just don't think we're going to have the masses of people coming there who want to do that anyway. I think it's not going to end up being progressive senators or progressive staff who think that it's important to be there, to be there, or do that work. I think that they are, I firmly believe that the hardest working members of the university are the progressive staff, like the ones who just believe that democracy matters and voice matters. And And they have a kind of commitment to the university as a social project, as a public. Yeah, institution. Yeah, they're often they're often not interested in a highly individualized mm. career. Uh, all of those mm. things, right? So it's been a really great conversation. Is there any last kind of thing you wanted to share, or any thoughts that you want to leave leave us with? You know, I think the, I think the one thing I have really learned, I guess, over time of participating in the university is that the implementation of the idea of a democratic university is really very, very difficult. 
and it requires quite a lot of deliberation across sectors. I don't think a university that is managed by a small group of people at the top gets it right because I think really, especially in the current global context, managers tend to be held to account by certain kinds of metrics that are short-term. They want to show that they did something. So, you know, there, there tends to be a lot of invention, for example, of plans and strategies and so on. When it's put in the hands of that small group, it's a problem. But I also think that we have to not assume that students are always going to have the long-term interests of the university at heart, and we shouldn't assume that student bodies are always progressive and democratic. There are moments when they're also pushing in a direction that's not going to be very good for democracy. So you need something that is durable, some way of creating voice that is durable and that has a real, the real participation of, of people at the chalk face, the ones who are whose whole career is about engaging with students and uh, producing fabulous academics and writing amazing work. Because that, that's where the heart of the institution lies. So you really need to empower that group of people. And I don't know how you do it, because it's, it, it does mean a lot of unrewarded work. Who, really, who wants to spend their life in meetings? Mm. But unless you are in that, I don't think you see how complex the issues are. I mean, service to the institution is part of our contractual responsibilities. I think what a lot of staff struggle with is just workload issues. Yeah. You know, so it might come down to something as simple as making sure our workloads are manageable so that we can properly invest yes. the percentage of time that should be allocated to serving our institution. Actually valuing that. Exactly. You know? And there is, at the moment, yeah. it's, it's purely voluntary and that's yeah. right. It's not, yeah. you know, sometimes management thinks that those of us who get involved are just a pain in the ass, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> to be frank. Mm. So they, they kind of were the donkeys of the institution and then we get vilified for being difficult. Like, oh God, she's not going to raise her hand again. So it can be unrewarding in those ways. But if things work better, it's better. I think the faculty I'm in, you're in, our faculty has dramatically changed and it's much, much better and a much more interesting and lively place, you know, despite the rise of managerialism and all of those terrible things. Uh, in our faculty, there's much more sense that you can make a difference if you get involved. And there, as assistant dean research, I, I did I did, actually felt I did something good with that position. It wasn't just administrative branch. Yeah, fantastic conversation. I don't see how we can do it mm -hmm. other than having mechanisms of participation mm -hmm. that are inclusive and yeah. that people participate in. Yeah, exactly. But I think you've shed a lot of light on questions of how the institution is governed, new creative ways of thinking about change as not being purely about, you know, kind of anarchistic revolution or about or managerial, managerial bureaucracy. So lots to think about there. 
Although many colleagues might consider issues of university governance outside of the ambit of their day-to-day -day responsibilities, I think that today's conversation has shown how important it is for all members of a university community to think about ways in which they can use the existing institutional structures to effect change for the better, both for their own sake and also for the sake of their students. There are many challenges that lie ahead and many new questions that come up questions about how our universities are structured, how they're governed, what this might mean for transformation, what it might mean for individual workloads, and we'll take these up in future podcasts. But for now, a very big thank you from the academic citizen to Professor Shireen Hassim for her time and her insights and a very informative conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. Your feedback is very welcome. We'll be back next week. For now, let's hear from a student to close. Hi, my name is Jason Park. Um, I'm doing first year chemistry so uh, so far. The university management has been pretty good to me. I don't really know too much about it, but uh, so far I've seen that it's uh, like it seems quite efficient. Now and again, you'll have some slip ups. Like uh, now and then, with my physics tests, I've been postponed like two or three times. But otherwise, I think I've had quite a good experience with the um, university management. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Limbenyane. Thanks to Professor Shireen Hassim, Jason and Mukodiwa for their time, as well as Pervez Khan for his input and David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.